Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Everyone, I hope you are all well. Uh, this is your host Shabir and uh, welcome back to the Ilm Feed podcast. Uh, really excited about today's show. Uh, I've got a brother with me who I've been meaning, we've been meaning to meet for a long time, genuinely, like has fallen through a couple of times. Finally got to meet him for the first time and even better, got him straight onto the podcast, right? <laughs> so our first proper conversation and chat is going to be quite interesting. Uh, let's put it that way, right? Uh, we have someone who recently has been making a lot of noise, mashallah. Um, if you're following him on social media, then you would know he's been all over, literally all over. When I say that, like last I checked, he was in Jamaica. <laughs> then next thing you know, he's on a tour in the USA. And now he's touring here in the UK. It gives me great pleasure to introduce our dear brother, Mustafa Briggs. Assalamu alaikum. How are you? Alhamdulillah, I'm good, man. Tired, but good. Tired, yeah. Well, I can imagine a lot of traveling recently. Yeah. yeah. Where crazy. have you been in the recent months? Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, January, Yeah. just to talk about the year, January I was in Nigeria. Okay. Um, I did my lecture beyond Bilal in Nigeria. February, I was in America. I did a USA tour mm. because Black History Month in America is in February. Okay, it's in February. And that kind of got extended into March. Right. Then I came back. Then April, I traveled to Senegal and Mauritania. <clears throat> Okay. Because uh, my sheikh is in Mauritania and every April he has um, a gathering there. So I went to Mauritania for that, just, you know, spiritual Great. detox. Came back in May, back to Egypt where I live now. Yeah. Um, that was Ramadan. Then I went to Morocco. You're studying in Egypt? Yeah, that, studying in okay. Yeah, full time now. Good. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Then um, June, I was in, June or July, I was in Puerto Rico. Wow. Okay. Beyond Belau. Um, <clears throat> August, I was in Jamaica. Yeah. And then this September, I just did another USA and Canada tour. So I wow. went to Canada for the first time. And um, yeah, October, Black History Month. So I'm back here with you guys in the UK. Mashallah. Yeah. Amazing, man. Amazing. Like, I can imagine why jet lagged and, you know, feeling yeah, tired, just, a lot of traveling. It's just crazy. And the way the bookings come in, especially for the UK tours, you know, ISOC's like, yeah, it's not yeah. really too organized. So it's like, I'll get a last minute last booking. Minute, yeah have to travel to like Bristol or Leicester or somewhere yeah, crazy yeah. and then come back in the day. So I got back home last night at about 2 a.m. Wow. So yeah, and then... Yeah, You've got I'm another one now. today and obviously the podcast just before it. Alhamdulillah. Yeah, but it must be an amazing experience though, right? Just yeah, travelling and... It's been crazy. I never expected it to be like this at all. Yeah, like I yeah. didn't expect my lecture. Like when I first started lecturing, I thought, okay, I'm going to get five, six bookings and then yeah, it's yeah. done. I didn't, like, now I've done over, I've done the talk over 40 times now, mm. like, across the world, five different countries, so alhamdulillah. Wow, so, so give some context to our viewers and listeners. Obviously, uh, in the recent year or so, it's Beyond Bilal, which we're going to speak about in a bit more detail. Mm -hmm. And then now, in the in the recent kind of weeks, we've got uh, Before Malcolm X. Yeah. Right? So I love the names. I love the concept behind it. So why why do you think so many people have taken so much interest in it? And it's like, it's just you're traveling now, lecturing. Like you said, you weren't expecting it. Like, is it is it something that maybe hasn't been spoken about or hasn't been I feel done like in this way? I don't think it's been done in this way. Okay. It's been done before, and we have to, like, um, mention, like, the shayukh and the scholars who have tried to bring this knowledge out to the people before. So okay. one of the pioneers was um, Sheikh Abdullah Hakim Quick. 
Yes, he, from, the, from the US? From He's from Canada, Canada actually. Yeah. Canada. He's American, but he was yeah. he's based in Canada. Um, when I went to Canada, mm. I actually got to meet him and he shared some books with me and some resources mm. and kind of encouraged me because there was a time when he was the only person talking about black history and African history within Islam in the right. Western world in that context. And so he's written many books about <clears> the subject and um, he's recorded a documentary and he was the guy for the Islamic history. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, alhamdulillah, he... He um he was a pioneer in this, and there are a few other people. Habib Akande has also kind of delved into it from the UK, mm. and a few others. But in terms of this day and age, um, and this time that we're in, like 2019, um, aside from Habib Akande, I think I'm the only person talking about this subject in the way that I am, yeah, and the way that I'm doing it, and obviously through social media and social media Definitely. promotion, you know. In their time, in she- like for example, Sheikh Abdullah Hakim's quick, quick time, the internet wasn't even really a big mm. thing. They were like out here selling CDs, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, DVDs, yeah. and stuff. Like he was telling me when he used to come to the UK and he had his yeah. you know, cassette tapes and he was selling them. But now Instagram, Facebook, mm. WhatsApp, all of these apps are Much they're easier. helping to spread spread the message yeah. quicker. No, definitely, and I think <coughs> like very quickly, I've from from what I've observed, you've almost become like the mouthpiece for this topic yeah it's very yeah. interesting to see because literally every isoc uni i'm seeing your name pop up which yeah, is great alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah and it's great to see that because especially as someone who's younger from this generation you can relate um and it's something that obviously is being picked up very quickly a lot of people are taking interest in it which is also really good mm. um but coming back to how we're saying like you weren't expecting this yeah so let's give again some context so like you were so you went to like harvard yeah, yeah. And, and these are places which are not like prestigious places, yeah, yeah, universities. Yeah. You, you went Oxford, alhamdulillah. Um, and recently we were just saying that you went to LSE, London School of uh, Economics, and um, that's the same kind of platform that Malcolm X himself was on, uh, Muhammad Ali was on. Yeah. So what was that like for you? That was yeah, literally yeah, a few days ago as well, yeah, right? It was literally, yeah, it was literally two days ago. Mm. It was crazy because through this lecture that i've been doing beyond below mm-hmm. i managed to get like i've done over 40 universities yeah but oxford was one of them cambridge was one of them when i went to Amer- when i went to america they have what they call the ivy league okay. which are like the oldest and like most prestigious eight universities in america right harvard is included um yale is included mm. and i did four of the eight universities wow, so i did harvard i did yale i did um brown and i did university of pennsylvania and um yeah i did harvard again in the summer but that was through my podcast that i have the barack boys shout out barack boys <laughs> you look follow up uh yeah barack boys podcast we were invited to talk about our experience as young muslims in the west in harvard yeah and then yeah most recently lse yesterday and why the lse one was interesting is because when i started doing these talks it was mm-hmm. usually the isocs <clears throat> or the islamic societies that were bringing me in and then it reached a level where the student unions were inviting me or the universities themselves mm-hmm. and so with lse last year i did the event through the isoc and right. i think the b the black and ethnic minority um uh society yeah and then this year, they pushed it forward for me to be included um, in the LSE Public Lecture Series, which right. is like the platform that they give to like Kofi Annan, Nelson Mandela, mm. Tony Blair, Margaret Thatcher, like all of the politicians and CEOs yeah. and all those kind of people. And when I finished giving my talk and I was talking about it was the new one um, before Malcolm X History of Islam in the Americas. 
um, they said, well, two of the people that you mentioned, Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X, also <laughs> gave their lectures here as wow. part of the LSE Public Lecture series. So I feel like that was that was crazy for me because yeah. there was a time I could have never imagined. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Imagined that happening. Uh, what yeah. was it? What was it like? Because I I remember seeing on your Instagram story recently, like. It's, it's funny when you think about it, alhamdulillah, it's all tawfiq from Allah, like how, you know, you're going to these big universities um, here in the US, but then you mentioned how, like, you failed your A-levels, which yeah, is quite, yeah, yeah. like, the, it's a funny contrast when you look back, right? Yeah, it's crazy because, like, at the time when I was doing my A-levels and I failed them, <clears> the universities that I wanted to get into, I was rejected from all of them, mm. and then I came back now, two years later, after graduating and yeah. I'm giving lectures in all of the universities that I was rejected from wow so <clears throat> I mean childhood it was it's all my childhood and my context because according to you know statistics or according mm. to what people assume about people from particular backgrounds or ethnicities or socio-economic situations I shouldn't be where I am today sure. and I shouldn't yeah. be doing what I am today I am you know a young black boy from inner city London mm. I grew up in a single parent household I never met my father and my biological father till I was 20 wow. years old wow. and that was through my travels that I mm. met him um <clears throat> You know, there's a history of, like, mental health in my family. Because of that, I was sent to foster care. So I spent four years in foster care. And the time I was doing my A-levels, I was in foster care. So it was a difficult time for me where I couldn't really... I don't want to blame myself and say... I don't want to blame the situation, but yeah. I'll blame myself and say I wasn't disciplined enough with everything that was going on in my life to concentrate, to be able to put the effort in mm. to, to my A-levels to get the, the results that I needed. And obviously my situation was yeah. a unique situation. Like I was living in a hostel at the time because, mm. you know, if you're in foster care, you'll be in foster care till about 18 and then they put you on this like independent living pathway. Mm. So you have to go into a hostel and wait for to apply for housing, etc. So I was going through all of that at the same time as studying and just emotionally being in a place where, I mean, I have, alhamdulillah, extended family members that support me in the ways that they can yeah. but they couldn't physically be there for sure, me yeah. in that situation so you know I wasn't living with my mother anymore my father wasn't around and it was essentially just me by myself with my iman mm. and like my belief kind of just to push me through if it wasn't for that I mean I have many people that lived in the hostels with me or many people that I grew up with that I went to school with like I remember from the five like I used to rap when I was younger I was about 14 15 I used to rap from all the boys that I used to rap with in school, one of them's made it and he's like a rapper. A lot of them, most of them went to prison. Some of wow. them got stabbed. Some of them got arrested. Some of them have life sentences. Some wow. of them have... So it's like growing up in that yeah. environment and seeing <clears throat> all of those outcomes. Some of them had mental breakdowns. And it's like only a few of us survived. Mm. And at the time, I didn't even really think that it was that serious. But looking back now and comparing the way I grew up and where I grew up and how I grew up with other people, mm. it was like, yo... I didn't have a normal childhood. <laughs> I didn't no, go through a normal yeah. lifestyle. So then to reach this stage in my life now where, you know, I'm being called by some of the most prestigious universities in the world. And honestly, I feel like embracing Islam was what saved me from a lot of things mm -hmm. because I embraced Islam when I was 13. 13? Yeah. And even right. though I was involved with people who were living certain lifestyles and doing certain things, because I had that faith in Islam, I was like, do you know what? There's certain limits that I won't cross. There's certain things mm -hmm. that I won't do. And I know that regardless of where I am now, I have a future 
in this yeah. life and I have a future in the next life that I have to think about and consider. So, you know, that saved me from a lot of things. And I had guidance of Shuyuk, like I had guidance of my teachers mm. from West Africa and from here who, you know, provided a good example for me and were role models for me at a time when I didn't really have any other role models. Yeah. Like I didn't have my father around to show me how to live my life. And for a lot of the other boys that I grew up with, they would look to the elders, like what we call the elders in mm. the area who were selling drugs, who were doing all these things as models for success because mm. we didn't see as young black boys successful black men outside of drugs or outside of the entertainment industry. Mm. It's only through Hamdulillah being exposed to my shiyukh that yeah. I was like, oh no, there are yeah. other models <clears throat> for success and being yeah. exposed to their environments and also within my family, like my mom's cousins, when I went given the opportunity to travel back to Africa, mm. I saw my uncles working for the government. I saw my uncles, you know, working for the UN. I saw, you know, different models for success that in inner city London, a lot of the time you're not shown. Yeah. Even if you are shown positive role models, it's usually, oh, there's a sing they're a singer or they're a rapper or they're a sports mm. person. Growing up as a kid, I didn't do any sports. I couldn't play football. I couldn't play basketball. I'm not a stereotype. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I just yeah. like to read. Mm. Throughout my whole childhood, because my mother was always, um, she always used to say, you know, oh, I can't afford to buy video games or I can't afford to do da da da. So I never had any consoles growing up. Mm. Till today, I don't know how to play PlayStation or Xbox. Like, I never had any of that. Growing up, I just loved to read. Right. And I was reading all the time. Like, I would take 10 books out from the library every <laughs> week, max out my limit, read yeah. all my books, study, do all of that kind of stuff. And so for children like me, there wasn't really anyone I could look at and say, oh, this is how I'm going to be in the future yeah. at that time. But alhamdulillah, I, a lot of people would say, I have become that person now for the Mustafas that mm -hmm. were there 10 years ago that didn't have anyone to look to. And that's a blessing from Allah. Alhamdulillah, that's amazing. It's amazing yeah. to hear, very inspiring. Um, so it's interesting. I mean, you, you mentioned how like, you know, going through all of that foster care um, by yourself, you know, uh, literally, like you said, your iman to pull you through. Because uh, that's the thing, like a lot of people would ask, how do you pull yourself or how do you pick yourself back up in that situation where, you know, what was, what would you say is a turning point for you? Like you failed your A-levels, right? Now, you know, obviously you did end up going to university, you did end up graduating, right? So what did you do to like, did you just think to yourself, you know what, I need to work hard, I need to push myself, went for your A-levels again, got into uni? Like what was it? What was that moment for you? Okay, so... um when I did my A-levels the first time, I was yeah. in foster care, um, I took my A-levels. I wasn't really concentrating, like I wasn't even really in class a lot of the time. Like mm. I was dealing with my own personal issues and, you know, I didn't study. And I never had to study before A-levels. Like I was right. just one of those kids, I'd read the book in class and remember it and then take, yeah. the, part, take the exam and pass. But you know, when you reach A-levels, you can't really do that. Like yeah, my yeah, GCSEs yeah. were cool, I got four A's, four B's mm. um, and, I, and I went through. But with A-levels, yeah, it was, a, I got EDU the first time I did it. So that was like complete write-off. Yeah. And I was just stuck because I had applied to, my dream was to always go to SOAS mm. to study Arabic and economics. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I got rejected from SOAS. I got rejected from all of my backup options and I just didn't know what to do. And then at that stage, I thought to myself, do you know what, I can't give up. Mm. I can retry. So I reapplied. I retook my A-levels at Westminster Kingsway College. And even when I retook them, I didn't get amazing results, but I got enough to get into um, Westminster University. Mm. But 
going to Westminster, I wasn't given the option of studying Arabic and economics. I studied international relations right. and Arabic, which was amazing because then that opened the door for <clears> me <throat> to do an internship with an organization called um, the Global Diplomatic Forum. Okay. And I maintained my internships with them every summer for the whole time I was in uni. Okay. And like, for me, I always have a way of looking at life that I've inherited from my shoe. One of my sheikhs, I remember in Senegal one day, he was saying that if you read the story of Musa and Khidr mm. in Surah Kaf, yeah. you are Musa and life is Khidr. <laughs> there Explain. are many situations. So in the story of Musa Khidr, you see that Musa meets this teacher Khidr. Yeah. And Khidr says, you can accompany me, but you have conditions. Yeah, yeah. Don't ask me about anything that I do. And so Musa's like, okay, bismillah, let's go on the journey. Mm. I want to learn the knowledge that you have to give me. And he sees Musa, he sees Khidr destroying the boat. Mm. He sees Khidr killing the child. He sees Khidr repairing the wall. And he doesn't understand why is Khidr doing all of these things that outwardly they look like they're going to be disasters. Mm. And then at the end of the <clears throat> at the end of the journey, Khidr says, "Okay, this is the end of the journey between me and you. Let me explain why I did what I did." Yeah. And then you saw that everything that outwardly looked as if it was a disaster, or looked as if it was a problem, or looked as if it was a barrier, or looked as if it was problematic, was in fact there was a divine wisdom mm. behind why it was being done, yeah. and it was for the benefit of the people involved in the situation. Mm. And with us, life is the same. There'll be so many situations that you come across and you feel like, oh, this shouldn't happen this way, or this shouldn't happen to me, or this is a disaster, or this is a problem. But in Senegal, they say, when Allah's fixing something, he looks as if he's destroying it. <laughs> <laughs> like you look as if like me yeah. in that situation I could have looked and thought oh my god my dreams I wanted to go to SOAS I didn't get yeah. in I wanted to do this I didn't get in but if I didn't go through all of these things I wouldn't be here yeah. lecturing in all of these places and talking to you on Ilmfeed podcast about it being seen by thousands of people so it's like the future of the situation Allah knows why he's putting you in certain situations to train you and prepare you for a yeah. future blessing that you're about to receive. I 100% believe that. And so that was the ideology that was instilled in me as a child mm. by my shuyukh. And that's what kept me through all of the terrible situations that I was going through when I was a teenager. Because now my adulthood, alhamdulillah, is very different from a lot of people's. And I feel like it's those teachings and that belief that kept me on, on track. Alhamdulillah. Nah, that is amazing. And it's, it's such a like such a powerful <coughs> point that you mentioned. Like You could have looked back and thought, you know what, this is everything's gone wrong for me. But in fact, by that happening, another door opened up. And that oh. door just opened up so many more opportunities for you. Alhamdulillah. So, Alhamdulillah. It's amazing, man. Coming back to... Um, so let's talk about Beyond Bilal. Uh, very interesting name. Yeah. I remember when I first came across the post, I was like, ooh, okay. Beyond <laughs> like, There's clearly a, a lot of meaning behind these two words. Yeah, yeah? 100%. So, so for me, I've, I've never spoken to you about this. So let me just give you my thoughts on what I kind of kind of took from that name. So for me, it's like <sighs> Bilal radiallahu anhu, al-Habashi, so Abyssinian. He's kind of like the the reference point for Muslims, especially outside of the black community. So... The reference point is being that, you know, yeah, yeah, no, like, I'm not racist because, yeah, yeah, Bilal Odilan, he was, he was black and he was Abyssinian and, you know, yeah, he, he, he stood on top of the Kaaba and he gave the Adhan first time, first Mu'adhin and that's kind of like the get out card. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And sometimes what we might find is that there is like uh, there like for, there's definitely an issue of racism and anti-blackness within the Muslim community. Um, and that's kind of like a get out card. So what I felt like you've done is you took that beyond Bilal. Actually, it's not just Bilal's land. There is so much more to it in the Quran, in like from the Sahaba, and then the tradition continues, contemporary, um, you know, scholarship in Africa and beyond. Um, that's kind of what I took from it. Is am I kind of? You're there? exactly on point. Yeah, you're on your hundred percent on point. That's exactly what it was because um, the time that I came up with beyond Bilal, so yeah. I had finished my first degree. I did Arabic and international relations at Westminster, mm. and then I managed to get onto a master's degree program at SOAS. Okay, great. Yeah. So you made it into SOAS. I made it into SOAS. Yeah, <laughs> they rejected me first time and second time, but third time they let me in. Third time's the charm in it. Great. So I was doing, <laughs> I was doing my masters and my dissertation previously in. Um, in Westminster was Arabic literature and literacy in West Africa. Right. Because many people don't know that the primary lingua franca of academia in West Africa, well, there was academia in West Africa pre-colonization. A lot of people don't know that. And the lingua franca of the educational institutes, such as Sankore University, etc., was Arabic. Mm. And so there are hundreds and thousands of manuscripts, like the Sankore University had the largest library um, in Africa since the Library of Alexandria. They had over 700,000 manuscripts, all in Arabic or in Ajami, which was West African languages Mm. written in Arabic script. So I focused on that in my dissertation and all of my professors who, some of them were Arab, some of them were English people who studied Arabic, had never heard of it and they didn't even know that existed. And it's like a thousand year tradition Mm. that is ignored and completely unknown about in West African um, Islamic history. So I covered that in my dissertation and then I was talking to it with some of my friends, talking about it to some of my friends and there was a time one of my friends called um, Najwa, she had an interview with a BBC radio person and they asked her, oh, can you be black and Muslim at the same time? And you know, Twitter obviously exploded and everyone was having these discussions about the place of black black people within Islam or the experience of black Muslims in the UK and so there were a lot of panel sessions happening at different ISOCs that wanted to deal with the subject Mm. and the first panel session I was invited to that was two years ago was at King's College so the ISOC did an event I can't remember what it was called but it was about that so it was me and one of the former heads of FOSIS Yusuf who um, is Somali, and then my friend uh, Kyle Gray, who was also a master's student at SOAS. Mm. And so we discussed it, and I they said, okay, we want you to give a presentation. And that was the same time there, were all, there was also another YouTube series. There were two YouTube series done about the experience of black Muslims in the UK. Right. And so I watched all these YouTube series, and I saw all these discussions, and I just felt like a lot of it were black people complaining about discrimination, complaining about racism, complaining about feeling like they weren't made to feel a part of Islam Mm. or the Muslim community, etc., etc., etc. And then I thought to myself, okay, I'm a black Muslim, but I don't feel like that. Mm. I've never had to force my way to be accepted in an Asian or Arab Muslim space. Um, I just go to the masjid, pray and leave. Like, that's Mm -hmm. not an issue. But I know that I'm connected to a legacy like the shuyukh that I took um, shahada from. I became Muslim through the influence of one of the um, biggest imams in West Africa. His name was Sheikh Hassan Sise from Senegal. And his grandfather, Sheikh Ibrahim Nias, was named by um, Al-Azhar University as the Sheikh al-Islam of Africa. Mm. And he had the largest Muslim movement in the history of Africa. 
according to Western academics, not even according right. to his own followers. Mm. And so going to Senegal, going to Nigeria, going to all of these places and interacting with that community and understanding the history and the legacy of Islam in Africa, mm. I was like, I don't feel out of place at all. Yeah. And I feel like the reason why all of these things are happening, okay, it's all good to complain about it and speak about your experiences. That's a part of the process. Yeah. But we need to look forward as to what are we going to do to solve this issue. Mm. And for me, I felt like, black Muslims themselves don't know enough about their place within the religion mm. and people outside of the black community don't know enough about the place of black people within the religion and so that's why with this combined ignorance you mm. can have racism and you can have all of these discrimination yeah. and people not feeling a place because if you look into the deen and the knowledge that you've been given doesn't place you in the narrative and you don't know about the history of how it relates to you you'll mm. feel out of place mm. and then at the same time the people that are not part of your community if they don't understand your role within the development of the religion you're going to be out of place as well and the usual as you said get out card when yeah. speaking about these difficult issues is always oh well you know there's no racism in islam because Bilal was black yeah, oh yeah. there was the ma'adin and but i was from my traditional studies so after um i got into my master's program i left it and i moved to egypt to do mm. tradition to study traditionally so i'm in cairo now and i've always been studying traditionally like throughout university i used to yeah. go to mauritania and study i used to go to senegal and study um, i speak fluent arabic alhamdulillah and studying the traditional books there's so much hidden knowledge in there that people are not exposed to that i felt would change the situation right. so i decided to take all of that knowledge out i spoke about it at that first um panel session at king's and someone yeah. from oxford was there and they said you have to do this again in oxford <laughs> so yeah. then my second talk was at oxford and then it just continued to spread right. through word of mouth and then last year black history month i said okay i'm going to take all these different presentations because i did for example at ucl history of islam in west africa then in um oxford i did beyond bilal um uh, black history in the Quran yeah. and then I did all of these different things I put them all together in one presentation mm. I had um, the best graphic designer in the world, Islam Yassin <laughs> let me plug him, Islam Yassin made designed everything for me he is an awesome poster he's, yeah, alhamdulillah, he's amazing, <laughs> I don't want to work with anyone except him alhamdulillah. <laughs> he designed everything for me and I put it on Instagram and I was like well I've spoken about this subject a few times. I have background knowledge. Does, any, does anyone want to book me to come to their university? And it blew up where I had 30 requests to come by different ISOCs. Mm. And so last year I did a 20 university tour in Black History Month. So every day of the month I was in a different mm. university giving the talk. And then it just kind of exploded from there. But it was just, I formulated it as a remedy to try and help the situation. Yeah. It's all good speaking about the negative experience of black mm. Muslims. But I feel like the way to move forward is through education they need to be educated about we need to be educated about our history and our legacy within islam and other yeah. people need to be made aware of it too <clears throat> so that you know we can comply with allah's command in the quran so that we know each other exactly, and we understand yeah. each other yeah. absolutely so you, you mentioned that personally for you um you've you haven't had a problem per se you know you felt kind of accepted but so okay i have yeah. had problems yeah, before okay. so like i remember for example you know, just the typical thing of like going mm. to the masjid and then someone, oh, excuse me, brother, are you new to Islam? Da, right, da, da, right, that. Right. I see. Or yeah, yeah. going to like, I remember I was I was in a bookstore in um, Edgware Road. Yeah. It was like an Arab bookstore. Okay. And I saw, I, I love books. Anyone that knows me knows like <laughs> yeah. books, money and food. Like that's my thing. <laughs> 
So I went into the bookstore and I was like, ah, and I was picking all these books. You know, there was the Diwan of Abu Nawas and all these like classical Arabic books. And like, I'm a big poetry person. Yeah, yeah. So I was buying all these poetry. Diwan of Imam Shafi was there. And I picked them all. Like, I had about five books. And I took it to the counter. And the guy was Egyptian. And he was talking to his friend. And he was like, ah, he was like, I don't know what this little black boy wants to do with all of these books. Really? And they were laughing. And they thought I didn't understand what they Ooh, were saying. Okay. So I started laughing too. And I replied to him in Fusha. I was like, sorry, I didn't understand everything you said because I speak Fusha and clearly you don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was like, but I studied Arabic. I read Arabic books and that's why I'm buying the books. That's my business, buying these books. Wow. So do your job and sell me the books. And the, do you know what I mean? You get these microaggressions yeah, yeah. and you see these kind of things and they all come from places of ignorance. Mm. But I've never... F- have those situations make me feel like I'm out of place. Mm. And that's because I understand my history and my legacy as a black man right. within Islam. You're grounded. Yeah, but that. I feel like for a lot of people, we don't have that, especially in the UK, because the knowledge that we're given doesn't include our narrative or our history within the mainstream yeah. teaching and of Islam. Mm. Um, and so for a lot of people, they do feel alienated. They do feel, and it goes at one of two ways i see that with a lot of especially black converts to islam either they leave islam or they come away from islam because they don't feel like they're accepted within muslim spaces or they decide to try and assimilate and become arab or become mm-hmm. asian so you see black people like changing their name to abu something and wearing polyester tops and trying to say yani in every sentence when they can't speak arabic mm-hmm. because they feel like oh in order for me to be a good muslim i need to try and be an arab or I need to right. try and be a Pakistani, or I need to try and... Because they don't know that they have a culture and a legacy mm. within the religion, and they're being made to feel by these people as if your essential nature does not fit in with Islam. And I've discussed that on the Baraka Boys podcast. We had an episode, I think it has like nearly 100,000 views now, about racism, and it yeah. was calling out there was a particular daddy that said some racist statements. And we kind of broke it down in the podcast to say like... The way that he was speaking and what he said, because he was saying to um, a group of people on the street, you know, brothers, we are not black. Let's stop acting like we're black. Allah doesn't like da-da-da-da-da. Mm. We're not Jamaicans. We need to behave properly. We need to behave civilized. And it's like, okay, well, if you're a black Muslim hearing those statements, that then means essentially what he's trying to tell you is that your essential nature Mm. and your culture and the way you are is not acceptable to Allah and it's not acceptable in this religion. Mm. So then where do you go from there? Alhamdulillah, I've been grounded with the tradition to know yeah. to not let that affect me, but there are thousands of others who went. And so yeah. that's why I did Beyond Bilal. And, and to also remove people who would make statements like that anyway as of well. Course. So what you're saying from both sides, from both sides, so those within people within the black community and those outside who might be pushing anti-blackness, yeah. whether it's openly subtly, you're saying that the main solution would be for both sides to be well grounded mm-hmm. in this knowledge to understand the legacy, 100%. understand the tradition. That makes a lot of sense. So I want to get into the actual because we've been speaking about the context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I want to get into a bit of give us a taste of. So when we say beyond Bilal, let's let's start with the Quran uh-huh. because let's be honest. Like in the Quran, we mentioned Musa Islam for example already. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously, there's many prophets that are mentioned in the Quran, many stories, but. I I would say personally that majority of Muslims don't know what black history is in the Quran itself. hundred percent. Right? And obviously, the Quran is not going to state it like, okay, this person is this, this person is that. Because obviously, Allah's focus isn't on that. But it's still good to, you know, 
look into it, research it, right? Which you've obviously done and you've spent a lot of time doing. Mm-hmm. Let's start with the Quran. What are your, give us some facts, drop, drop some facts for us. <laughs> <laughs> so with the Quran, for example, I yeah. look at the fact that the Quran itself, if you look at 50% of the stories that happen in the Quran, they take place in Africa. Because okay. ancient Egypt yeah, is in yeah, Africa, yeah, okay, yeah. and it was okay, an yeah, East African nation. Because before the Phoenicians and the Greeks and the Romans and the Arabs invaded Egypt and mixed in with the population yeah. and the Ottomans, they were East African people. And you know, d- genetics tests, DNA tests on all of the mummies will show you that this was a black nation. So it, yeah, they looked yeah, nothing yeah. like uh, the Cleopatra movies and all the yeah, movies yeah. that Hollywood pushes on us. So. If you look at the fact that 50% of the stories of the Quran take place in Africa, and if mm. they don't take place in Africa, a lot of the stories have significant African characters in them, such as Suleiman's wife, Bilqis, mm. who comes from East Africa to, to Jerusalem to visit him, or Prophet Ibrahim's wife, Hajar, who's also ancient Egyptian, mm. that marries him and settles in Mecca later on. Those That kind of signifies that Africa has a place in Islamic history. Mm. And then looking at figures in the Quran themselves. So I looked at, for example, Adam, Musa, and Isa, just as case studies. Adam is Abu al-Bashar, the father of humanity. Allah, when speaking about the creation of Adam, the famous verse that we always talk about is, replacing a representative on the earth, etc., etc. There's also another verse in the Quran where Allah says, yeah. I'm creating a man from black mud that was molded into shape. To understand the Quran, you have to go to the tafsir. All of the major mufassirin, Tabari, Qurtubi, uh, Baydawi, Baghawi, Jawhari, like uh, Jalaluddin Suyuti and Mahali in Tafsir Jalalain, when they discuss the, this verse, they all say, Hama'in Masnoon is a black mud. Some of them even go as far as saying it's a mud that is either black already or they leave it until it becomes black and then uh, and then they create something from it. So right. one of the, I think it was Baydawi or Bagawi, he said, a lot of people say Allah fermented the mud that Adam was created from and left it until it became black and then created Adam from it. And then right. Jawhari in his tafsir, he says, a lot of people say the reason why Adam was named Adam was because he was Adam alone. Adam mm-hmm. in complexion. So what does Adam mean? Go to Lisan al-Arab, the first Arabic lexicon and the most widely referenced Arabic lexicon. Mm. They say Adam means black. And when somebody's darker than Asmar, which is dark brown, like our color, mm. they're described as Adam alone or mm. Adam Shadid al-Adma, like mm. they're very, very dark skinned. So the usage of this word to describe the first human, and it also correlates with science because we know the first human beings were found in Africa and mm. they were black people. And the black genes are not recessive so any other nations will derive themselves from that but they can't you know you know that yeah you know the scientific aspect of it so already just from that the fact that there are over 10 traditional mainstream tafasir that state or propose that adam was black yeah that's knowledge that's within our books Mm. that people don't know about a lot of people study and they'd never even heard of these things and until you go to the tafsir itself it's something that's not highlighted because it's not seen as important Mm. but it was important enough for those scholars to include it in their tafsir so alhamdulillah then Musa, we have a hadith where the Prophet ﷺ is describing different different prophets so he says for example Ibrahim (coughs) 
if you want to know what Ibrahim looked like, look at your companion talking about himself, meaning mm-hmm. he's the one that looks the most like Ibrahim. Then he speaks about Musa, Amma Musa, Farajulun Adam. He was a dark skinned man. And then he talks about him having curly hair as well. Mm-hmm. And then going back to the Quran, even one of the miracles of Musa, mm-hmm. if you put your hand into your pocket or underneath your armpit, when it comes out, it will be beida, it will be white. If he wasn't non-white in the first place, that wouldn't have been a miracle. Mm. And so when you look at the tafsirs, Tabari says, وَأَمَّا مُوسَى فِيمَا ذَكَرْ لَنَا كَانَ Adam." Musa was, according to what we were told, Adam in complexion, the mm. same as the original Adam. He was yeah. a black man. And so his changing color, his hand changing color was made a miracle for him. Mm. And all of the other Mufassirin, when they talk about this ayah, they say the same thing. And then they quote some of them, the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu talking about him to confirm this. Yeah. Isa, same thing. So there's different hadith. Some say he's Ahmar, light-skinned. Some of them say he's uh, Adam. But Ibn Umar, the son of Umar bin Al-Khattab, says, Wallahi. And you know, when they said Wallahi, it meant something. <laughs> Serious, yeah. He said, Wallahi, the Prophet Sallallahu never said he was Ahmar. But he said that I had a vision of three men doing tawaf of the Kaaba. The man in the middle was Adam, he was dark-skinned with long curly hair. And when I asked who he was, I was told that he was Isa ibn Maryam. Mm. So those are the father of humanity, the father of the Judaic tradition, the father of the Christian tradition. Well, not the direct father, but the main figures yeah, of the all complete. of these traditions. Yeah. All described as black men by the Quran itself or by, mm. the, sah- by the Sahaba, by the Prophet Sallallahu or by the Sunnah. And even if you look at Umar bin al-Khattab as well, because I go into... From the Quran, I go into Black Sahaba beyond yeah. Bilal. So we've all watched the Omar series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Omar series looks, if you look at it, <laughs> Omar looks like you know what your stereotypical light-skinned Arab person would mm-hmm. look like. Mm-hmm. But when you go into the books, you realize that his grandfather Nufail bin Abdul Uzza was half Ethiopian and half Arab, wow. and then he had his son Al Khattab with an Ethiopian woman. So Omar bin Al Khattab's father. Al-Khattab bin Nufail bin Abdul Uzza was three quarters Ethiopian mm. and one quarter Arab. So the way Omar looks in the NBC series is probably not how he looked mm. in real life. And you have similar narrations with Ali ibn Abi Talib. He's described as Adam, Shadid al-Adma as well. He's described as dark skin and others. And then I speak about black Sahaba that are not mentioned aside from Bilal. So there are other Habashis there aside from Bilal. Yeah. The Sahaba that spent the most time with the Prophet Sallallahu from the day he was born until the day he passed away, Um Ayman, who he referred yes. to as his mother, mm. Ummi Bada Ummi, my mother mm. after my mother, who raised him as her own child from the age of six when he was in the house of his uncle and his grandfather, was an Ethiopian woman. Mm. Bilal's mother, who was a princess, her mama, was also there as a Sahaba. Mm. Um, Salim, one of the freed uh, slaves of Abu Hudayfa, he was one of the Quran teachers for the Sahaba and he mm. used to lead the Sahaba in Salah, in military expeditions. Sumayya, the first martyr, mm. and a list, there's a list of about, I think, 30 Sahaba that I mentioned that were black Sahaba that were there in the time of the Prophet Sallallahu that nobody really speaks about. Yeah. And even the fact that the first openly practicing Muslim community wasn't established in Mecca or Medina, but was established in Africa, in yeah. Ethiopia, under yeah. Najashi. Yes. That was the first time Muslims were allowed to practice Islam openly and freely. Mm. And at that time, Mecca didn't accept Islam and Medina doesn't, didn't even exist. But on the shores of Africa, 
you had a Muslim community. So Islam's the story of Islam as we know it today starts in Africa even. Mm. So all of that, I kind of wrap it in the first half of the presentation. Wow. And then the rest of it goes into the history of Islam in West Africa because mm. most black Muslims are West African descent yeah, yeah. Um, in the Americas and in, in Africa. And we have nations such as, for example, Nigeria has nearly mm. 100 million Muslims more than the whole of the Arabian Peninsula. Wow. And that's just one country from Africa's mm. 54 countries. Or, well, the numbers always change. But yeah, 50-something nations in yeah. Africa. Just one of them has more Muslims than the whole of the Arabian Peninsula combined. Wow. And I talk about how Islam entered there because when black people go to masjids or when black people enter certain spaces, people assume they recently come into Islam. Yeah, yeah. When we have reports from northeast Nigeria that they accepted Islam from emissaries sent by Omar bin Abdul Aziz. Mm. That's in the 8th century. Yeah. We have on the other side, Ghana and Takrur, which were the main empires in West Africa before colonization a thousand years ago in what is now Senegal and Mali. They were the first Muslim nations in West Africa. They, they officially accepted Islam, the kings of those nations, a thousand years ago. And already before they accepted Islam, we have reports of scholars from the south of Spain coming in saying that we met the king of Ghana. He wasn't Muslim, but the minister of the economy was. Uh, a lot of the ministers in his, in his parliament were. And there was already in his capital city 12 masjids at the time when the king wasn't even Muslim. Mm. And the king converted to Islam a thousand years ago. So that means it has a over a thousand year history mm. within that region, which is something that a lot of people don't know or don't talk about. Mm. So when you see a West African Muslim, don't assume that they just recently came into the deen. A lot of them are descended from scholars who have been Muslim for over a thousand years. Yeah. And even the most, and I'm talking a lot, but no, <laughs> I'll, end, I'll end it on this point. <laughs> Even the most famous slave narrative that we know in the West is the story of Roots. Mm. Kunta Kinte, anyone yeah. that doesn't know Roots, um, Roots was like, it was released in the 60s. And it was about this slave from Gambia called Kunta Kinte who was taken to America, etc. Kunta Kinte was Muslim. And what was interesting is that if you read the book Roots, mm. um, Alex Haley, who's the descendant of Kunta Kinte, narrates that Kunta Kinte's grandfather was... <coughs> Kairaba Kunta Kinte, he came from Mauritania. He was a scholar from Mauritania. And he was named after his grandfather's tribe, the Kunta. Mm. The Kunta tribe were one of the oldest tribes in West Africa. And they're the descendants of Uqba bin Nafit, who was a Sahaba who conquered mm. Africa with his, with his uncle Amr bin As. So Amr bin As conquered Egypt yes. and settled in Fustat, which grew into Cairo. Mm. His nephew, Uqba bin Nafe, went on into Tunisia and established a place called Karawan. Mm. And that became a center for learning in Africa. And from there, the Maliki Madhab, etc., spread throughout. His descendant, Fatima Fihri, went to mm. Morocco and opened a masjid, which they called Masjid Karawin, mm. the masjid of the people from Karawan. And that became, as we know, Karawin University, the oldest university in the world. Kunta Kinte is from the same tribe as Fatima Fihri because they're all descended from Uqba bin Nafi. Yeah. So that's a hidden history there that a lot of people don't know. And then that links in with America because how many African-Americans now 
like Alex Haley, are descended from Sahaba of the Prophet and they're from Quraysh, but they didn't even know. Mm. All of that kind of links in. And then I end the presentation after speaking about the history of Islam in West Africa, focusing specifically on female scholarship within the West African tradition, because we have a long tradition in West Africa of female scholars, hafizas, teachers and it's not an ancient tradition it's something that still exists today mm-hmm. so i speak about figures like nana asma or dan Fodio, who was the daughter of usman dan Fodio, who founded one of the west african khilafas the sokoto khilafa that still exists till today in nigeria mm-hmm. she was a scholar um, her father was one of the first people to issue a fatwa against female genital mutilation he fought for female um, education etc in the house of society at the time mm-hmm. and so his daughter was a scholar a teacher she was a member of her father and her brother's government and she had an all-female movement called Yantaru that used to go around opening schools and teaching women. And she used to write in three different languages. And I talk about the daughters of Sheikh Ahmed Bamba, like um, Sheikh uh, Muslimatu and Sheikh uh, Maimuna, who, like Maimuna, for example, Sheikh Maimuna Mbake, hand wrote 20 Qur'ans from memory and gave them to her father as gifts. Wow. And I talk about the daughters of Sheikh Ibrahim Nyas as well, yeah. who um, are West Africa's biggest female Muslim scholars to date. Mm. So, like, one of them, Sheikh Harukaya, for example, was an uh, advisor to President Jimmy Carter of the United States on his projects that he was doing in Africa. Another one, Seda Umkhairi, she was given an award from an American university because she has an organization, an NGO, that has over 200,000 members in Niger that fight for women's rights, build hospitals, build schools for women and children. And Sheikh Mariam Nyas, whose son is the professor of Islamic studies at Harvard, today, mm-hmm. Usman Khan. Sheikh Mariam Nias has one of the biggest Quranic schools in Africa, in um, Dakar, and thousands, hundreds of thousands of children have memorized the Quran from her and her students. So all of this is contemporary female Islamic mm-hmm. scholarship that we don't really see. We don't really see women like Sheikh Rukaya writing books and being sent by her father to teach. Like Sheikh Ibrahim Nias gave Shahada to a group of 5,000 people in Ghana in one day. Really? The documents are in the British Library. They were talking yeah. about it. The community that he gave shahada to, he sent his daughter, Sheikh Harukaya, to them to live with them, to teach them Islam. And she took her books with with her. And so I have pictures in the presentation of her with her male students who had memorized the Quran from her and are studying fiqh and all of the Islamic sciences from her. And, you know, this is a narrative that we don't really see, especially with the Muslim world and all of the stick that we're given Mm. with how Muslims treat women. You don't really see female scholars or hear about female scholars, let alone seeing female scholars establishing not just religious movements, but social movements and becoming Mm. major political figures and social figures in their community solely based on their deen. It's not through feminism that forces them to abandon the religion, but they're empowered through their religion Mm. and through actual correct implementation of their religion to become major figures in their society and change makers. Yeah. Wow. I so think, I think by the way that's the long, longest time I've been silent on that <laughs> on a podcast. Yeah, you have to I've chop been, that up. I've been listening to you. Yeah, so uh, I speak wow. about all that, and the presentation's like over an hour, so I go yeah, into I depth imagine, about all I mean, of these things. Even so an I'm hour really... is not enough time. To yeah, everything you just mentioned to do justice to it. Amazing, man! Like, there's so much to unpack from what you just said. Like, I can imagine that whole presentation. Um, what a few interesting points. So depiction, uh, for example, like you mentioned, Omar ibn al-Khattab, or even uh, Isa, obviously the depiction, right? <laughs> Complete opposite of of what you've been saying, and then obviously going back to the point of um, how obviously you know fifty percent we're saying you know even of of the the figures that are mentioned in the Quran 
African because they're from Egypt, which a lot of people forget. Mm. Uh, it's funny because I literally, I think it was like yesterday or the day before when I was, I was teaching an Arabic class. And then I think one of the students asked me like, uh, why is... Um, you know why is Musa and 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 some of these names like why don't they accept you know like Tanween right so I was like yeah because it's it's an it's a non-Arab name, name right yeah. and they were like what do you mean it's non-Arab it's not an Arabic name like <laughs> he, uh, like 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 uh, what's it um, Suleiman and Yusuf it's not Arabic I was like no they're not Arab names like what do you mean I was like yeah because Egypt is not in Arabia <laughs> yeah, yeah they're like. It was like a light bulb moment for them because you forget these things, right? Yeah. Um, and but then based on that, we would then say because majority of the prophets mentioned in the Quran, Bani Israel, right? Um, there's only a very few that are, you know, bar the Prophet Sallallahu Hud, you know, a few others that are that were sent to the Arabs. The rest are Bani Israel. Mm. So what we're then saying is that these uh, prophets are we then going to say that these are originally African? Yeah. Well. A lot of I people know, do know, say that. Yeah, so yeah, there yeah. are there is. Because I know people that have done like DNA tests and it's been it's literally been traced back to like Bani Israel. Yeah. You know what I mean? So so what what we yeah. think, yeah. I would say it's an interesting one because yeah. if you look at Bani Israel, mm. it means the children of Israel. Yes. And Israel was a name for Yaqub. Yeah. His children moved into Egypt. Yes. His twelve sons moved into Egypt and they settled there for a period of over four hundred years. Mm. So if you trace lineages through the father, they're all Bani Israel. But when they're in Egypt, obviously they're marrying Egyptian women. Yes. They're integrating mm. into the Egyptian society. And so through their patriarchal lineage, they're Bani Israel, but genetically their majority by the time of four hundred years of living yeah. in that community, they're gonna end up being African. Mm. And so you see Descriptions of Musa being dark skinned, being yes. black, because just like Omar bin Al Khattab, Omar bin Al Khattab is Qurayshi, he's Arab, but mm. his father's three quarters Ethiopian. Mm. So, you know, the mix between East Africa, Africans in general, and Arabs and Bani Israel, etc., that's all something that I feel needs further research and people need to look into it and just think about it, think about yeah. it more. And then, obviously, through that, there is a large movement of people who say that you know, a lot of the West Africans and black people are descendants from Bani Israel. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that there, there, there is that whole movement. And even within, so like my mother's Gambian, right? Yeah. Within Gambian history, we have historians, for example, um, one of my ancestors was a historian in Senegal mm. called uh, Yoroboli Jao. And he was the first person to write the history of Senegal in, um, in French. Right. Because his grandfather, his father was a chief, and so the French, what they were doing, they were taking the sons of all the religious leaders and the kings, etc., and putting them in French school to try and integrate them into the mm. French colonial system. But he spoke to the oral historians who preserved the West African history to write the history of the tribes of Senegal. And in his history book, he said most of the tribes in Senegal are descended from ancient Egyptians. And he even narrates like which pharaohs were were leading the country at the time when they left Egypt and moved west into these areas yeah and so a lot of tribes do take that even though if that's not Bani Israel that's ancient Egypt mm -hmm. and Sheikh Antajob says the same thing he said he makes interlinks between the Wolof language and ancient Egyptian language and shows that they are connected mm -hmm. so a lot of the West African tribes do have ancient Egyptian ancestry um yeah very interesting. If anything, what everything that you've kind of mentioned demonstrates that there's a lot of reading to do. Yeah, there's, there's a lot, lot of reading to lot do, of reading and to there's do. a lot of research to do. And yeah, a lot of research and a lot of things that are, 
you know ignored or a lot of things that are just not paid enough attention to like it's there you know Adam alayhi salam story we all know it yeah and all the tafsirs that I quote are tafsirs we all study exactly. yeah but it's just like these details are never really brought to light which again kind of uh, feeds back into this whole idea of going back to the beginning of it, of our discussion where you mentioned that a lot of people are actually ignorant of these things mm-hmm. and that feeds into a further problem of anti-blackness or you know other problems within the community so i think all of this kind of ties in really well uh, and i think you're doing a great job with you know the presentations and the seminars uh, and i would say guys book him <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. book, book yeah. him inshallah <laughs> you know just contact Mustafa uh, contact the team and get him at your university wherever it is and clearly he's been around the world so just get him wherever you need to yeah. so he's happy to travel and it's, it's, it's much much needed just covering the last few points inshallah so after Beyond Bilal now you're working on you know the recent uh, seminars which is before Malcolm X another yeah. interesting uh, title and uh, I, you know I also kind of got a sneak peek out of you where you know, you potentially are going to be speaking about history, black history in the UK, mm. which I, which I hope, we yeah, can, yeah, yeah, inshallah, in the future, in the future, hear, inshallah. hear from you, inshallah, definitely. Um, but let's talk about this, the most recent one, or you've been, like we said, LSE. You're going to be delivering one today. Uh, what is that? How is that different to the other seminars? Okay, so I mentioned all the stuff I spoke about yeah. in Beyond Bilal. Yes. And so I was traveling, so it was two major things. Mm. Last year I got married mm. to an African-American. She's half African-American, half okay. Mexican. But she comes from a community where she's a fourth generation Muslim. Right. So many people assume Islam is very recent, it's growing yeah, yeah, in yeah. recent times. And when I was speaking to my father-in-law about Islam in America, I realized there's so much history that, as a UK person, I didn't know. Mm. Because whenever Black History Month comes up, all the Muslim organizations do a Malcolm X event. Yeah. If you're lucky, you get a Bilal event, but mostly it's Malcolm X, Malcolm X, yeah, Malcolm yeah, X, yeah, right? Yeah. So I grew up going to all these Malcolm X events. I knew the story. And for me, I just assumed that, yeah, you know, Islam in America amongst black people started with Malcolm X, Nation of Islam. Mm. Then after Malcolm X comes back from Hajj, people realize, oh no, there's Sunni Islam and start converting yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. how it spreads. That's the usual narrative that mm. we're given. Whereas my father comes from a, com- my father-in-law, sorry, comes from a community that were Sunni Muslims since the 1920s. Right. And they have a sheikh. Their sheikh is actually Pakistani. He 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 lives in, in, um, in Pakistan. Mm. And um, they established their own communities in America where they have their own towns that, they have their own schools, they build their own houses, etc. And so there are pockets of Muslim cities and towns mm. across America that are run by African-American Muslims based on Islamic principles, yeah. and nobody knows about that. And they were existing at the same time that the Nation of Islam were existing. Mm. And so traveling throughout America, I was meeting different people and seeing all these different narratives in February, and people were asking me, well, why don't you mention America in your presentation? Why don't you talk about the mm. American, African-American Muslim history? And I said to myself, do you know what? African-American history and the relationship of Islam with America deserves its own presentation. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did. I gathered all the information I could and I made the new presentation before Malcolm X. And many people are booking me thinking it's a Malcolm X event. They're like, oh yeah, the Malcolm X event, brother, you're going to come and talk about it. And I'm like, well, that's how I catch them, isn't it? I'm like, yeah, okay, Malcolm X, Malcolm X, put him on the poster. But I actually speak about the history of Islam in America leading up to Malcolm X, yeah. which is a very long history that many people don't know about. Um, so to give you an example, Mansa Musa, yeah. king of Mali, 
in the 13th century, richest man to have ever lived, yeah. $800 billion US dollars net worth according to modern day times. 75% of the world's gold in the 13th century came from the Mali Empire. Mm. He goes on Hajj, stays in Egypt, depresses the Egyptian economy for 10 years with the amount of gold that he spent, him and his entourage of 72,000 people. 72,000. <laughs> <laughs> but in one of the interviews, he yeah. explained how he became the king of Mali. And he said, I became the king because my brother, Mansa Abu Bakr, wanted to explore the extremities of the Atlantic Ocean because he didn't know what was on the other mm. side and he wanted to find out. So he sent a crew of 200 boats across the Atlantic and only one boat returned. Mm. So then he said, I'm going to go myself. He had 2,000 boats full of people, mm. black, West African Muslims, and 1,000 boats full of resources, food, water, etc. And, and he says to Mansa Musa, I'm leaving the kingdom in your hands and goes across the Atlantic and never comes back. Right. When Ferdinand... Columbus and Christopher Columbus arrive in Hispaniola which is now known as Haiti and the Dominican Republic mm. they say we see the native people bringing handkerchiefs to us and these handkerchiefs are the same handkerchiefs that they make in Guinea and Sierra Leone and in West Africa but I don't see how they could have had any connection because West Africa is all the way over there and this place is all the way over here. Mm. But those are the same miscalculations that made him think he was going to India and ended up there in the first place. Mm. He says he sees them wearing almazars, which are the same cloths that the women in Granada in southern Spain are wearing. They have guanine, which is like gold. That's, it's a gold that's 18 parts gold, 6 parts silver mm. and 3 parts copper. Guanin is the Mandinka word for God, which is the language of the Mali Empire. So there's a correlation where many people propose, and there were books. There's one professor called Leo Weiner who wrote a book called, I forgot what the book is called, but you can Google Leo Weiner. And he says that Africans arrived in America before the, before the Americans, mm. before the, uh, sorry, the Spanish. So that's a 700-year history of Islam in the American continent. That one, maybe, can't be confirmed. People yeah. can debate that. But what you can't debate is the transatlantic slave trade, which is the 15th century. You have slaves like Kunta Kinte, mm. who's descended from a Sahaba and who yeah. comes from a line of scholarship that goes back all the way to the Prophet Wasallam. Captured. People like Ayuba Suleiman Jalo, who was a Hafiz of the Qur'an and the grandson of a scholar. And he hand-wrote the Qur'an from memory in slavery three times and he was freed taken to england mm. sorted out the arabic documents in the british library his letters were translated by oxford university and then mm. he was sent back to africa you have in jamaica another slave abu Bakr sharif mm. who's descended from a sharif and family who were the descendants of maulai idris the first king of morocco who moves into mali so his descendants mm. moved into west Af spread across west africa they settled in Mali in Timbuktu and Abu Bakr Sharif was captured, renamed Edward Donlan and taken to Jamaica. It's discovered that he can read and write Arabic. He's a Hafiz, he's a scholar. Yeah. And so the king of Morocco actually intervenes to get him freed from slavery and he goes back to Morocco for two years and then goes back to Mali. Then there are other slaves who weren't as lucky like Yaro Mahmed who, um, <clears throat> who freed himself from slavery after 40 years 
and bought property. He used to lend money to traders and he even had shares in one of the first banks in Washington, mm -hmm. the capital of America, and Omar bin Said. There's so many of these slaves whose narratives come up and they represent thousands of slaves whose narratives are not heard of, who are mm -hmm. all, mashallah, Muslims and a lot of them scholars because of the strong <clears throat> yeah. legacy of scholarship in West Africa. And we have the first slave revolt that happens in that side, in the Americas, yeah. 1522, the Hispaniola revolt against Christopher Columbus's son. It was 20 Muslim slaves from Senegal that did it. And after that happened, yeah. the king of Spain says any slaves that are Muslim or have exposure to Islamic teaching should should not be allowed on the island because he fears that Islam is leading to them rev being revolutionaries. And that island became Haiti, which is the first mm. island to be free in the, you know, two, three hundred years ago. And they freed themselves from slavery and colonization. And it was the legacy of these Muslim slaves that led to that. The yeah. same thing with um, Brazil. Most of the slaves people assume were taken to North America, but Brazil had more slaves from Africa than anywhere else. And there was a community of Muslim slaves in Bahia. And my brother Habib Akande wrote a book about this, so I would recommend everyone check out the book. In Bahia, there's a community of imams who establish madrasas, they teach the Qur'an, and all of the slaves from different parts of West Africa who couldn't communicate through their tribal mm. languages will communicate with each other in Arabic. Yeah. And they also had a slave revolt, which led to the beginning of the independence for them in mm. Brazil. And up until 1910, there was a community of over 100,000 African Muslims in Brazil descended from these slaves. Wow. So I talk about all of that and yeah. all the figures that lead up to, to Malcolm X because you can see that the legacy and the history is very, very strong. Wow. And that's just about 25% of what I talk about. <laughs> so book me to see the exactly, rest. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. You know, uh, one post that I that I read um, recently, someone, someone I think tweeted it. It's basically saying that when... People usually focus on, uh, when people speak about black history, then their focus goes immediately, whether it's in talks, whether it's in documentaries, or even Hollywood movies, it goes to slavery. Mm -hmm. But there's so much more, like you were mentioning, like the scholarship and the history that's behind it. Do you agree with that statement, saying that people automatically go there? I agree with that statement 100%, and I feel like instead of referring to these people as slaves, you need mm. to refer them to them as being enslaved Mm. They were enslaved people because they weren't born as slaves yeah. and that wasn't all that they were. And I do feel like people like to twist and change narratives. So why is it that, for example, whenever Bilal is mentioned, they say, oh yeah, Bilal, he was a slave and he was freed. Mm. But whenever Sayyidina Yusuf is mentioned, nobody says he's a slave. Nobody mm. refers to him as a slave. He's Yusuf, he's a prophet. Yeah. It, I mean, to be it, honest, in the time of Musa, Bani Israel were, were slaves. Enslaved. Yeah. They were enslaved, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But nobody paints them with that picture. But yeah. anytime it comes to black history, oh yeah, the slaves, the slaves, the mm. slaves. Speak about them outside of the context of slavery. Because I remember... Um, there's a famous quote black history doesn't start with slavery black history was interrupted by slavery wow so yeah. you know that's it so i i talk about a lot of the people that were enslaved but mm. i refer to their history their culture their legacy because they come from a strong tradition and mm. i do feel like it is a microaggression when people are referred to as just as slaves or in the context mm. of slavery when their history is way more than that when they're other people figures in the Quran Musa's mm. family 
Harun was a slave or yeah. he was enslaved. Yusuf, again, enslaved. But because they're not depicted as black, then they're not spoken about as slaves. Mm. Maybe after Beyond Bilal, people will start... Inshallah, yeah, changing perceptions here. Changing yeah, perception, yeah. 100%. Um, but like I said, there's so much more to discuss. Unfortunately, yeah. this podcast won't allow us to get into it. But like we said, definitely through your seminars, through the work that you do, inshallah, a lot more people will be made aware and... Yeah. If anything, it will inspire them, like we said, coming back to the beginning, to look into it further. And I do want to yeah, add one thing, I'll end it yeah. there. I want, through my work, for this not just to be limited to Black History Month mm. and not just to be limited to, oh, well, you know, let's talk about Black History to make it look like we're not racist. Yes, I want it, and I'm doing all of this, to move the narrative into the mainstream along with everybody along with everything else yeah why is it that whenever we speak about scholars or scholarship we talk about morocco we talk about syria we talk about yemen but people don't talk about scholars from pakistan or people don't talk about scholars from west africa as mainstream it's always mm -hmm. like a niche thing or if they if they're even acknowledged as well yeah. and so i don't want it to just be limited to black history month and black history events but i want it to become something where whenever you're talking about the great figures of the ummah whenever you're talking about the great scholarship and the legacy within the ummah it's in the mainstream and mm. it can come away from being something that we speak about once a year or in a particular time and place yeah. to something that's discussed amongst the legacy and tradition that we have as a whole because we never have Andalusian history month whenever yeah, we talk yeah. about the Islamic golden age it's Islamic golden age yeah, everyone yeah. embraces it even though it was in Baghdad or even though it was in the south of Spain so I feel like the same way we love and respect and honor our legacy as Muslims with Sp with Spain and with the Abbasids and with the Umayyads, we should also have that same love for the Mali Empire, for Timbuktu, for Senegal, for Nigeria and for all of these other places. It's an amazing way to summarise uh, and I wish you all the best, honestly. I think <laughs> yeah. you're doing amazing work. I've been following it for a long time uh, <laughs> and yeah, it's just it's just been a real pleasure to have a chat with you and to break things down. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank for, you for having me. Alhamdulillah. And may Allah bless you. And of course, to all of our um, viewers and listeners, I'm sure you really enjoyed and and like like you heard, like I barely spoke. <laughs> I gave the platform to Mustafa. He just led the way. Uh, and I'm sure you were just as engaged. There's a lot for us to take from that. Uh, check out uh, our, our dear brother Mustafa Briggs' work, inshallah, his seminars, his lectures. There's lots wherever you might be inshallah he might be there soon and of course subscribe to our youtube channel on itunes as well drop a comment below let us know what you thought of this podcast inshallah and i hope to see you again very very soon from your host shabir from mustafa from the team take care assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh